which is precipitated by hemoglobin and by nothing else. Dr. Watson, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. How are you? How do you do? You've been in Afghanistan, I perceive. How on earth do you know that, Mr. Holmes? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it was many years ago, but I shall never forget that fateful meeting in the laboratory at Bath Hospital. I was home from India, invalided out of the army, and looking for lodgings in keeping with my pension. Holmes had just found a suite of rooms at number 221B Baker Street and wanted someone to share them. I'd been warned he might prove a strange companion. And so he did. I became more and more curious about him. And, of course, he quickly noticed it. I trust, Doctor, that these few weeks have not proved to you that I am too difficult a fellow lodger after all. <laughs> Far from it, Holmes. I don't mind admitting you puzzle me, though. Puzzle you? Well, the way you work like a fiend sometimes, and at others you lie on the sofa there, hardly uttering a word or moving a muscle from morning to night. And there's those curious visitors of yours. In one afternoon, a grey-headed, seedy fellow looking like a peddler, then an old white-haired gentleman, a fashionably dressed young girl, and a railway porter, uh, and that little sallow, rat-faced fellow Lestrade, who's been here three times in a single week. But I always apologize for putting you to any inconvenience in the matter, Watson. I have to use this room as a place of business, and these people are my clients. Yes, but what is it? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, you don't inconvenience me at all, Holmes. I'm only too pleased. Thank you. But tell me, have your observations of me over these weeks reached any sum total yet? You, you might think it's a, a bit of a cheek, but I've, uh, I've been jotting down all the various points from which you've shown me that you're exceptionally well informed. Oh, indeed? I should very much like to hear them. You would? Oh, well, I, I've got the paper here somewhere. Um, ah, here it is. <laughs> you, you won't mind, really? Not at all. Oh, well, it um, runs this way, um... Sherlock Holmes, his limits. One, knowledge of literature, nil. Two, knowledge of philosophy, nil. Three, knowledge of astronomy, nil. <laughs> knowledge of politics, uh, feeble. <laughs> oh, do go on. Uh, knowledge of botany, variable. Well up in belladonna, opium and poisons generally. Knows nothing of practical gardening. Yeah, me. Knowledge of geology, practical but limited. Tells at a glance different soils from each other. After walks has shown me splashes upon his trousers and told me by their color and consistency in what part of London he'd received them. Seven, knowledge of chemistry, profound. Eight, knowledge of anatomy, accurate but uh, unsystematic. Nine, knowledge of sensational literature, immense. He appears to know every detail of every horror perpetrated in the century. Ten, plays the violin well. Thank you. Eleven is an expert single-stick player, boxer, and swordsman. Twelve is a good practical knowledge of British law. Capital. Mm. Well, I suppose I'd better provide you with the answer to it all. <laughs> you see, the theories of observation and deduction, which I have frequently expressed to you, are really extremely practical. So practical that I depend upon them for my bread and cheese. Yes, but, but how? Well, I have a trade of my own. I suppose I'm the only one in the world. I'm a consulting detective. Consulting detective. 
Here in London, we have lots of government detectives and lots of private ones. When these fellows are at fault, they come to me, and I manage to put them on the right scent. Lestrade is a well-known detective. He got himself into a fog recently over a forgery case, and that was what brought him here. I see. And these other people? Oh, they're mostly sent on by private inquiry agencies. I listen to their story, they listen to my comments, and then I pocket my fee. But do you mean to say that without leaving your room, you can unravel some knot that other men can make nothing of? I have a kind of intuition that way. Observation with me is second nature. You appear to be surprised when I told you on our first meeting that you had come from Afghanistan. <laughs> My train of reasoning ran thus. Here is a gentleman of a medical type, but with the air of a military man, clearly an army doctor then. He's just come from the tropics, for his face is dark, and that's not the natural tint of his skin, for his wrists are fair. <laughs> He's undergone hardship and sickness, as his haggard face says clearly. His left arm has been injured. He holds it in a stiff and unnatural manner. Mm-hmm. Now, where in the tropics could an English army doctor have seen much hardship and got his arm wounded? Clearly in Afghanistan. The whole train of thought didn't occupy a second. <laughs> it's simple enough as you explain it. But, Holmes, I don't really think that... I say, hmm? that fellow down in the street, I wonder what hmm? he's looking for. Oh, you mean the retired sergeant of marines? Oh, now that really is going too far. <laughs> oh, well, we shall soon see. He's coming to our door. You know, the trouble is, Watson, that there are no crimes and no criminals these days. What's the use of having brains in our profession? I know well that I have it in me to make my name famous. No man lives or has ever lived who has brought the same amount of study and of natural talent to the detection of crime which I have done. And what's the result? There is no crime to detect. Or at most some bungling villainy with a motive so transparent that even a Scotland Yard official can see through it. A person to see you, Mr. Holmes. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Come in. Letter by hand for Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Thank you. Uh, may I ask, my good man, what your trade may be? A commissionaire, sir. Uniform away for repairs. <laughs> And you were... Sergeant, sir. Royal Marine Light Infantry, sir. <laughs> no answer. <clears throat> Very good, sir. <laughs> good day, gentlemen. Good day, son. Well, I'm blessed. <laughs> now, how in the world did you deduce that? Why, even when he was down in the street, I could see a great blue anchor tattooed on the back of his hand. That's Mac to the sea. He had a military carriage, however, and regulation side whiskers. Mm-hmm. There we have the Marine. He was a man with some amount of self-importance and a certain air of command. You must have observed the way in which he held his head and swung his cane. A steady, respectable, middle-aged man, too, on the face of him. All facts which led me to believe that he had been a sergeant. (laughs) Wonderful. Commentary. Oh, but I said just now that there were no criminals. What? It appears that I am wrong. Look at this. What? Would you mind reading it to me aloud? What is that? Oh, certainly, yes. Um, my dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, there has been a bad business during the night at three Lauriston Gardens off the Brixton Road. A man on the beach saw a light there about two in the morning, and as the house was an empty one, suspected that something was... Ah, it was amiss. He found the door open and in the front room discovered the body of a gentleman, well-dressed and having cards in his pocket... 
bearing the name of Enoch J. Dribber, Cleveland, Ohio, USA. There have been no robbery, nor is there any evidence uh, as to how the man met his death. There are marks of blood in the room, but there's no wound upon his person. We are at a loss as to how he came into the empty house. Indeed, the whole affair is a puzzler. If you can come round to the house any time before 12, you'll find me there. Yours faithfully, uh, Tob Tobias Gregson. Hmm. Gregson is the smartest of the Scotland Yarders. He and Lestrade are the pick of a bad lot. They have their knives into one another, too. Oh, They're oh. as jealous as a pair of professional beauties. There'll be some fun over this case if they're both put upon the scent. Surely there isn't a moment to be lost. Shall I go and order you a cab? My dear fellow, what does it matter to me? Supposing I unravel the whole matter. You may be sure that Gregson, Lestrade and Co. will pocket all the credit. He begs you to help him. Yes. He knows that I'm his superior and acknowledges it to me. But he'd cut his tongue out before he'd own it to any third person. <laughs> However, we may as well go and have a look. I shall work it out on my own hook. I may have a laugh at them if I have nothing else. Come on, get your hat. You, you wish me to come? Yes, if you have nothing better to do. Lindy. Here you are, Kevin. Thank you, Governor. Well, I must say, you don't seem to be giving much thought to the matter in hand. All that talk in the cab about Cremona fiddles and the difference between a Stradivarius and an Amartya. No data yet. It's a capital mistake to theorize before you have all the evidence. Well, you'll have your data soon. Um, aren't we going in? All in good time, Watson. Let us first observe such important details as the roadway. Mm -hmm. ah. The pavement. Mm -hmm. And the grass fringe. Ah, yes, that is interesting. Mr. Holmes, it's very kind of you to come. Ah, Inspector Gregson, this is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do? How do you do, Don? Mm. I've had everything left untouched. Except the pathway up to the house. Huh? If a herd of buffaloes had passed along, there couldn't be a greater mess. No doubt, however, you had drawn your own conclusions before you permitted it. Well, I've had so much to do inside the house, Mr. Holmes. My uh, colleague, Mr. Lestrade, is here. I've relied upon him to look after the path. With two such men as yourself and Lestrade upon the ground, there will not be much for a third party to find out. Well, I think we've done all that can be done. It's a queer case, though, and, well, I know your taste for such things. Did you come here in a cab, Gregson? No, sir. Did Lestrade? No, sir. Then let us go and look at the room. Ah, good morning, Mr. Holmes. Good morning, Lestrade. I think you've met Dr. Watson. Hey, of course, at your rooms. Yes, how do you do? This case will make a stir, sir. Beats anything I've seen, and I'm no chicken. You found no clue? None at all. Hmm. You're sure there's no wound? There are splashes of blood all over the place. Oh, positive. And, of course, this blood belongs to a second individual. Presumably the murderer, if murder has been committed. It reminds me of the circumstances attendant on the death of Van Janssen in Utrecht. Do you remember the case, Gregson? Uh, no, sir. Read it up. You really should. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before. Uh, do you want to examine the body, sir? Yes, uh, just a quick look, I think. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, that seems to be all. Just a sniff at his lips. And a glance at the soles of his patent leather boots. Uh, yes. Well, I think I've seen everything I need to see. He's not been moved at all. Well, no more than was necessary for the purposes of our examination. Then you can take him to the mortuary. There's nothing more to be learned. Right. Uh, let's have this pleasure. Oh, oh, Hello? What's that? Well, it's a ring. Ah, there's been a woman here. It's a woman's wedding ring. Well, this does complicate matters. Heaven knows they were complicated enough before. You're sure it doesn't simplify them? Simplify? All right, you can take him away. Yes, sir. Come, come, Gregson. There's nothing to be learned by staring at the ring. What did you find in his pockets? Um, gold watch and chain, gold ring with a Masonic device. Gold pin, bulldog's head with rubies as eyes. Cards of Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland, corresponding with the EJD upon the linen. No purse, but loose money to the extent of £7.13. shillings. Oh, and two letters. One addressed to E.J. Drebber and one to Joseph Stangerson. At what address? American Exchange Strand, to be left till called for. They are both from the Guion Steamship Company and refer to the sailing of their boats from Liverpool to New York. Have you made any inquiries as to this man, Stangerson? I did it once, sir. I've had advertisements sent to all the newspapers and one of my men has gone to the American Exchange, but he has not yet returned. Have you sent to Cleveland? We telegraphed this morning. How did you word your inquiries? We simply detailed the circumstances and said that we should be glad of any information that could help us. You didn't ask for particulars on any point which appeared to you to be crucial. I asked about Stangerson. Nothing else. Is there no circumstance upon which this whole case appears to hinge? Will you not telegraph again? I've said all I have to say, Mr. Holmes. Mr. Gregson, I have just made a discovery of the highest importance, and one which would have been overlooked had I not made a careful examination of the walls. Oh, Mr. Lestrade? And what is it? Now, look here, on this wall. I understand that. I'll strike a match. Uh, look at that. What does it say? I can't quite see... R-A-C-H-E. Rach? What do you think of that? The murderer's written it with his or her own blood. You see this smear where it's trickled down the wall? That disposes of the idea of suicide anyhow. Hey, why was that corner chosen to write it on? I'll tell you. You see that candle on the mantelpiece? Yeah. It was lit at the time, and if it was lit, this corner would be the brightest instead of the darkest portion of the wall. And what does it mean now that you have found it? Why, it means that the writer was going to put the female name Rachel, but was disturbed before he or she had time to finish. <laughs> you mark my words, when this case comes to be cleared up, you'll find that a woman named Rachel has something to do with it. <laughs> All very well for you to laugh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> you may be very smart and clever. But the old round is the best when all's said and done. Oh, I, I really beg your pardon, Lestrade. You certainly have the credit of being the first of us to find this out. And as you say, it bears every mark of having been written by the other participants in last night's mystery. I have not had time to examine this room yet, but with your permission I shall do so now. Now, uh, where's my lens? There. I think that will do. Huh. Twenty minutes that took you, Mr. Holmes. I could have spared you the trouble in five. They say that genius is an infinite capacity for taking pains. It's a very bad definition, but it does apply to detective work. What do you think of it, sir? Oh, it would be robbing you of the credit of the case if I were to presume to help you. 
You're doing so well now that it would be a pity for anyone to interfere. If you'll let me know how your investigations go, I shall be happy to give you any help I can. In the meantime, I should like to speak to the constable who found the body. Is he here? Well, no, he's off duty now. Then can you give me his name and address? Oh, yes, sir. His name is John Rance. Rance? You'll find him at 46 Audley Court, yes. Kennington Park Gate. Kennington Park Gate. Thank you. Come along, Doctor. We shall go and look him up. Hmm. Oh, gentlemen. Yeah? Yeah. I'll tell you one thing which may help you in the case. What's that, sir? There has been murder done, and the murderer was a man. He was more than six feet high, was in the prime of life, had small feet for his height, wore coarse square-toed boots, and smoked a Trichinopoly cigar. He came here with his victim in a four-wheeled cab, which was drawn by a horse with three old shoes and one new one on his off foreleg. In all probability, the murderer had a florid face, and the fingernails of his right hand were remarkably long. These are only a few indications, but they may assist you. <laughs> if this man was murdered, how was it done? Poison. Oh, one other thing, Lestrade. Mm -hmm. Don't waste your time looking for Miss Rachel. Rache is the German for revenge. Come along, Doctor. I have a telegram to send. I'm coming home. Now that I've sent my telegram, we can go and see this Constable John Rance. You think he'll be able to help us? There's nothing like first-hand evidence. As a matter of fact, my mind is entirely made up on the case. But still, we may as well learn all that is to be learned. You amaze me, Holmes. Surely you're not as sure as you pretend to be of all those particulars you gave? There's no room for a mistake. The very first thing which I observed on arriving there was that a cab had made two ruts with its wheels close to the curb. Mm -hmm. Now, up to last night... We've had no rain for a week, so that those wheels, which left such a deep impression, must have been there during the night. Mm. There were the marks of the horse's hoofs, too, the outline of one of which was far more clearly cut than that of the other three, showing that that was a new shoe. Since the cab was there after the rain began, and was not there at any time during the morning, I have Gregson's word for that. Mm. It follows that it must have been there during the night, and therefore that it brought those two individuals to the house. Well, that seems simple enough, but um, how about the other man's height? Why, the height of a man, in nine cases out of ten, can be told by the length of his stride. It's a simple calculation enough, though there's no use my boring you with figures. I had this fellow's stride both on the clay outside and on the dust within. Then I had a way of checking my calculations. Mm -hmm. When a man writes on a wall, his instinct leads him to write about the level of his own eyes. Now, that writing was just over six feet from the ground. It was childless. <laughs> and his age? Well, if a man can stride four and a half feet without the smallest effort, he can't be quite in the sear and yellow. That was the breadth of a puddle on the garden path which he had evidently walked across. Patent leather boots had gone round, and square toes had stepped over. There was no mystery about it at all. I'm simply applying to ordinary life a few of those precepts of observation and deduction which I advocated in an article some time ago. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that puzzles you? Well, the fingernails and the Trichinopolis cigar. The writing on the wall was done with a man's forefinger dipped in blood. My glass allowed me to observe that the plaster was slightly scratched in doing it, which would not have been the case had the man's nail been trimmed. Mm -hmm. 
I gathered up some scattered ash from the floor. It was dark in color and flaky, such an ash as is only made by a trichinopoly. I've made a special study of cigar ashes. In fact, I've written a monograph upon the subject. <laughs> Here, I flatter myself that I can distinguish at a glance the ash of any known brand, either of cigar or of tobacco. It's just in such details that the skilled detective differs from the Gregson and Lestrade type. And the florid face, then? Ah, that was a more daring shot. Though I've no doubt that I was right. You mustn't ask me that at the present state of the affair. <laughs> My head's in a whirl. The more one thinks of it, the more mysterious it grows. How came these two men, if they were two men, into an empty house? How could one man compel another to take poison? Where did the blood come from? What was the object of the murderer since robbery had no part in it? How came the woman's ring there? And above all, why should the second man write up the German word Rache before decamping? I confess, Holmes, I, I can't see any possible way of reconciling all these facts. You sum up the difficulties of the situation succinctly and well, Watson. There is much that is still obscure, though I've quite made up my mind on the main facts. Mm -hmm. As to poor Lestrade's discovery, it was simply a blind intended to put the police upon a wrong track by suggesting socialism and secret societies. It was not done by a German. Oh. If you notice, the A was printed somewhat after the German fashion. Now, a real German invariably prints in the Latin character. Yes. So that we may safely say that this was not written by one, but by a clumsy imitator who overdid his part. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, no. It was simply a ruse to divert inquiry into a wrong channel. I'm not going to tell you much more of the case, Doctor. You know, a conjurer gets no credit when once he's explained his trick. And if I show you too much of my method of working, you'll come to the conclusion that I'm a very ordinary individual after all. Oh, I shall never do that. You have brought detection as near to an exact science as it ever will be brought in this world. I'll tell you one other thing. Mm -hmm. Patent leathers and square toes came in the same cab. Yeah. Well, and they walked down the pathway together as friendly as possible, arm in arm in all probability. When they got inside, they walked up and down the room, or rather patent leather stood still while square toes walked up and down. Yeah. I could read all that in the dust, and I could read that as he walked, he grew more and more excited. That's shown by the increased length of his stride. He was talking all the while and working himself up, no doubt, into a fury. Yes. Then the tragedy occurred. Well, I've told you all I know myself. For the rest is mere surmise and conjecture. We have a good working basis, however, on which to start. And now we must hurry, for I particularly want to visit Constable Rance in Kennington. Let's go find a cab. Yes, what is it? You are Constable John Wren? What are we doing wants to know? My name is Sherlock Holmes. Inspector Lestrade said I could find you here. It's about the business at Lauriston Gardens, Brixton Road. I made my report at the office. Can't a man get a bit of rest when he's off duty? We, uh, we thought that we should like to hear it all from your own lips. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, I shall be most happy to tell you anything I can, sir. Come in, gents. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, sit you down on the sofa, gents. Thank you. Now, uh, what was it? 
Just let us hear it all in your own way as it occurred, please. Very well. Well, my time is from ten at night till six in the morning. At eleven, there was a fight at the White Hart, but bar that, all was quiet enough on the beat. At uh, one o'clock, it began to rain. I met Barry Murchell as the Holland Grove beat. We stood together at the corner of Henrietta Street, a talking. Well, presently, uh, maybe about uh, two, a little after, I thought I'd take a look around and see that all was right down the Brixton Road. It was precious, dirty and lonely. Not a soul did I meet all the way down, uh, though a cab or two went past me. I was uh, strolling down, uh, thinking between ourselves how uncommon handy a four-a-gin hot would be uh, when... Uh, when suddenly the glint of a light caught my eye in the window of that same house. Now, I knew that them two houses in Lauriston Garden was empty. On account of him that owns them won't have the drain seen to, though the very last tenant that lived in one of them died of typhoid fever. So uh, I was knocked all in a heap but seen a light in the window, and I suspected that something was wrong. When I got to the door... You are stopped? And then walked back to the garden gate. What did you do that for? Well, that, that's true, sir. I did, though. Oh, you come to know it. Have no one knows. Was you watching? No, no, no. Pray go on. Answer my question. Well, you, you see, when I got up to the door, it was so still and, and so lonesome that I thought I'd been on the worst for someone with me. I, I ain't afeard of anything on this side of the grave. But I thought that maybe it was him that died of the typhoid inspecting the drains what killed him. <laughs> well, thought gave me a kind of turn. And I walked back to the gate to see if I could see Murcher's lantern, but there was no sign of him nor of anyone else. There was no one in the street? Not a living soul, sir. And I pulled myself together, went back and pushed the door open. All was quiet inside, so I went into the room where the light was a-burning. There was a candle flickering on the mantelpiece, a red wax one. And by its light, I, I saw... Yes, I know all that you saw. You walked round the room several times, and you knelt down by the body, and then you walked through and tried the kitchen door, where, 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 and then... Where was you hid to see all that? Seems to me that you know a good deal more than you should. <laughs> Here's my card. No, don't get arresting me for the murder. I'm one of the hounds, not the wolf. Mr. Gregson or Mr. Lestrade will answer for that. Go on, though. What did you do next? Oh, went back to the gate and sounded me whistle. That brought Murcher and two more to the spot. Was the street empty then? Well, was as far as anybody that could be of any good goes. What do you mean? <laughs> I've seen many a drunk chap in my time. <laughs> I've never seen anyone so drunk as that coat. He was at the gate when I come out of leaning up against the railings and I was singing at the pitch of his lungs about Columbine's newfangled banner and some such stuff. He couldn't stand for less help. What sort of a man was he? No common drunk sort of man. He'd have found himself at the station if we hadn't been so took up. His face, his dress, didn't you notice them? Oh, I should think I did notice them, seeing that I had to prop him up, me and Murcher between us. He uh, was a, a long chap, a red face, the lower part muffled round. That'll him. do. What became of him? Well, enough to do without looking after him. I'll wager he found his way home all right. How was he dressed? Brown overcoat. Had he a whip in his hand? A whip? No. 
He must have left it behind. You didn't happen to see or hear a cab after that? No. Hmm. Well, there's half a sovereign for you. Oh. <laughs> oh thank you, sir. <laughs> I'm afraid, Rance, that you will never rise in the force. Uh -huh. That head of yours should be for use as well as ornament. You might have gained your sergeant stripes last night. The man whom you held in your hand is the man who holds the clue to this mystery and whom we are seeking. But I tell There's you... There's no use arguing about it now. I tell you that it is so. Come along, Doctor. Two to one B, Baker Street, Dennis. Right on, guys. The blundering fool. Just to think of his having such an incomparable bit of good luck and not taking advantage of it. Holmes, I, I, I'm rather in the dark still. It's true that the description of this man tallies with your idea of the second part in this mystery. But why should he come back to the house after leaving it? The ring, man, the ring. That was what he came back for. If we have no other way of catching him, we can always bait our line with a ring. I shall have him, Doctor. I lay you two to one that I have him. I must thank you for it all. Me? I might not have gone but for you. And so have missed the finest study I ever came across. Uh, a study in scarlet, eh? <laughs> yeah, why shouldn't we use a little art jargon? There's the scarlet thread of murder running through the colorless skein of life. And our duty is to unravel it and isolate it and expose every inch of it. What's, what's the matter? You're not looking quite yourself. This Brixton Road affair has upset you. Well, to tell the truth, it has. I ought to be more case-hardened out of my Afghan experiences. I saw my own comrades hacked to pieces of my wand without losing my nerve, but... I've gone over this business again and again this afternoon, until I doze off, that is. I can understand. There's a mystery about this which stimulates the imagination. Where there's no imagination, there's no horror. Hmm. Have you seen the evening paper? No, no. Give us a fairly good account of the affair. It doesn't mention the fact that when the man was raised up on the stretcher, a woman's wedding ring fell upon the floor. Oh. It's just as well it doesn't. Why? Look at this advertisement. What, I had uh, one sent to every paper this morning immediately after the affair. Uh, well, um, In the, the found column. Oh, uh, yes, 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 yes. In Brixton Road this morning, a plain gold wedding ring found in the roadway between the White House...